just doing five Sundays, just taking some key passages that help us as we look ahead about uh, what God has shown. In a sense, you're, as, as some commentators have said, you're looking into a bit of a mist. It's not that clear. But what the Bible is giving to us is signposts of the direction in which to look. And sometimes the mist clears a bit and you see a little bit about what eternity is like. But the important bit is that we, we get the Bible's signpost directions right so that we're not looking in a wrong direction. So I'm starting at the end and working a little bit backwards. The last two chapters of Revelation about the new heavens and the new earth. So we read together. First of all from Isaiah chapter 65. Behold... I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create, for I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his years. He who dies at a hundred will be thought of a mere youth. He who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them or plant and others eat For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the works of their hands. They will not toil in vain or bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, but dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. And then we come to these words in Revelation chapter 21, when John is given a vision of the new Jerusalem. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. 
I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. I want to read these words, which wasn't on the announcement sheet, but are important just um, as we think about this theme. When Paul comes in Romans 8, in the light of Jesus Christ and his resurrection and his ascension, says, The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Amen and may God bless these readings from his word. Part of the challenges that we face in the Christian church is two ways of seeing the what it means to have faith in Jesus. Some people and some churches follow this tradition that we're inviting God into our story. So it's about our fears and and dreams and aspirations. And when God doesn't give us what we want, we give up on him. I remember once somebody once said, I'm angry with God, I'm not speaking to him. Because I prayed for this and it didn't happen. In a sense, you have become the center of your faith. And the other way of thinking about it, in which you'll hear me uh, speaking about, is that it's not that we're inviting God into our story, but that he invites us up into what he is doing from creation to new creation. And so the struggles of our lives and the hopes and that we have are caught up within God's story, what God is doing, particularly through Jesus. And that's not easy to reorientate our lives around. Yesterday, I had to collect Timothy from Portrush. I had to leave him to Portrush. And so I started driving to Coleraine until Timothy said, this isn't the way. For 12 years, I've been driving through Coleraine to get to Portrush. But now I live in a different place and I have to get my mind around my new centre. And that means that I go to places on a different road. And that's hard for me to learn. Jesus is risen from the dead. It is a bodily resurrection. And so his resurrection declares something about us as bodily human beings. And sometimes it's hard to realize what his coming in flesh, becoming a human being, his death on a cross, his resurrection, and he appeared to his disciples bodily, means for us. It's a new center 
It's a radical center from which it changes everything about how we see life. None more so than when we deal with what happens beyond death. And so I'm asking three questions this morning about the new heavens and the new earth. Firstly is, this is actually what we long for. And secondly, how new is it? And thirdly, how glorious is it? This is what we long for. How many times have you heard people talking about eternity, but the image that is created of you sitting on a cloud, plucking a harp like angelic fairies? Greg Larson does the Far Side cartoons. In one, there is a man with angel wings and a halo sitting on a cloud, doing nothing with no one nearby. He has the expression of someone marooned on a desert island with absolutely nothing to do. A cartoon shows his inner thoughts, which are, wish I'd brought a magazine. So here in cartoon is a a picture that the world has about, about what eternity is like. One Christian pastor is recorded to have said, whenever I think about heaven, it makes me depressed. I'd rather just cease to exist when I die. I can't stand the thought of that endless tedium to float around in the clouds with nothing to do but strum a harp. It's so terribly boring. If that's his vision as a pastor, then you wonder why is he a Christian? And I think he might be a Christian because God helps him in this life rather than himself being caught up into what God is doing. Christian uh, John Eldridge in his book, The Journey of Desire, says, Nearly every Christian I have spoken to has some idea that eternity is an unending church service. We have settled on an image of the never-ending sing-along in the sky with one great hymn after another, forever and ever, amen. And our heart sinks forever and ever. That's it. That's the good news. And then we sigh and feel guilty that we are not more spiritual. We lose heart. And we turn once more to the present to find the life we can. There is nothing in the Bible about this kind of eternity. So where did it come from? And quite simply, to give you the most basic uh, reasoning is Greek influence into the church. Plato, who lived about, uh, before Jesus, um, The Greek philosophy was, because this body decays and our our spirits are eternal, then freedom is releasing this eternal spirit from this body that is decaying. And so they, in Greek philosophy and Platonism, those who follow Plato, was, we can't wait to die so that our spirits are free from this body that's decaying and is passing away, but it encases it. And as the Christian church became more Gentile and less, it lost its Jewish roots, it lost its rootedness in the kind of passages that we are talking about. And this Greek thinking about the, the eternal spirit and the bodies that are decaying influenced how they read heaven. And then in the Middle Ages, a Christian uh, called Thomas Aquinas developed this thinking every more that our spirits are what eternal and they're, they're the most important part of us and if they go to heaven... And then he started writing about in heaven, there wouldn't be plants or animals, but it would be the world of light. 
Uh, he argued that there will be no active life in heaven, only contemplation. Because God is a great object of our worship, um, he supposed that we would think of nothing for eternity but God. And that's kind of how we ended up thinking about sitting on clouds, playing harps, worshipping God forevermore. And sometimes Christian hymns can wander in that direction of escape um, without realising it. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. That this idea is that this world is passing away. So let's just forget about it. What in the future is what's important. That this created world is an irrelevance to eternity. And at worst a dark, evil and gloomy place. And it's been such a massive assumption in the way that Christians read the Bible. That we talk about going to heaven when we die. Even though the Bible never uses those words, it uses the words go to be with the Lord. But we talk about going to heaven when we die and we think that's it. So what about these last two chapters of eternity, of a new heavens and a new earth when everything is perfect? This is what, this is the, the picture the Bible paints for us. And I want our lives to be rooted in the Bible's story and not in the, uh, the cultural story of out, out there about what heaven may be like. And truth be told, this is actually what we long for. Because this is what we, made, we were made for. What God made us desire and therefore what we desire if we admit it is exactly what he promises to those who follow Christ. A resurrected body with the resurrected Christ on a resurrected earth. We are suited for that kind of living, a place like the one that we now have, earth. The story of the Bible begins in a creation that was good. The earth is good for us with our five senses of sight, hearing, smell, touch and taste. We love the beauty of it, the music of it, the food in it. We love relationships, the people who share our lives that we laugh with. In Genesis, God created a universe with human beings as his particular focus. And when he made the man and the woman, he says, this is very good. Bodily existence is very good. Our humanness is very good. But then Adam and Eve rebelled against God. They thought they knew better. They didn't trust that he would give them everything they need. And the one thing that he says don't touch is the one thing they think God is, is, is holding them back from. And so they rebelled and they're banished from Eden. But the rest of the story of the Bible is that God never gave up his plan for human beings to dwell on earth. The story of the Bible is God reclaiming and redeeming this world back to himself. And this is what we long for. We are homesick for Eden. We long for places of paradise. We, we look at where we can go on holiday and we see those beautiful beaches and the tranquility and our hearts resonate uh, with, with, with images like that of beauty, of a perfect and beautiful earth, free and untainted with relationships with other people, with creation and with God. God has always planned to bring our world back to the way he planned it from the beginning. And so immediately after Genesis 3, 
His answer to the problem begins, even in the curse, that someone will come who will crush the serpent's head. And all along you get a, uh, his answer becomes a little bit more clearer. He, he, he's going to be from Abraham's descendants. He's going to be from the tribe of David. He's going to be a king. He's going to be born. And then you come to Jesus' birth and he is the answer to everything that has gone wrong with Genesis 3. And why has Jesus come? So that this creation, this world would, would now reign again with the presence of God. So Jesus declares, the kingdom of God has come. Repent and believe the good news. God's presence, God's realm is now coming back into this world. And this fulfills the ancient prophecies. Isaiah 11, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is the expectation of the Old Testament. Jesus, on the, the Beatitudes, blessed are the meek, for they are the kind of people who will inherit the earth. This is the place of our ultimate blessing, is the earth. Second Peter chapter 3, but in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. Matthew 6, we say it so often, the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is done in heaven. And then we get all these other passages about, I will create a new heavens and a new earth in Isaiah. And then Revelation 21, when John is given a vision of it, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The boundary between heaven and earth goes so that heaven and earth become one. So the new Jerusalem, the place where God's presence is, descends into this earth and fills this earth with the presence of God. And then in Revelation 21, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will be with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them. Heaven and earth, heaven where God is, earth where we are, are one, because the earth is filled now with the presence of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The Bible from beginning to end is about God reclaiming this universe, this world, this creation, for himself and God redeeming a people who will honor and love him to inhabit this new earth. The climax of history, of redemption history, of this history that we are now living in, is a creation of a new heaven and new earth, a resurrected universe inhabited for resurrected people living with the resurrected Jesus. When you place your life in that center and you think of the implications for it, you can see how this is what we were made for. So often this life goes too quickly. We have all abilities that we, even I'm finding, you never have the chance to explore. But in eternity, you get the chance to become the kind of person with your gifts and abilities and potentials and powers that you never dreamed could be a reality in this life. In the new world that's coming, there will, you will be free from handicap and blenishments and disappointments and failures. You'll not be um, idling away the aeons of eternity playing harps, but you shall be doing useful work on the new earth. 
the new earth, the new creation is the fulfillment of what Genesis 1 and 2 wanted us, to be stewards of creation, to organise it, to plan it, to work it, to make it glorious. And we get the, the opportunity in the new heavens and the new earth uh, to be stewards of God's new world, but it's no longer frustrated by the curse of sin. And that's why Paul says in Romans 8, the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of the children of God. So when you go home, read Isaiah 35, read Isaiah 65, and get a picture of, of the Old Testament, the Jewish expectation of what God was going to do in his world in making it new. That is what we long for. That's what excites us. And excites men and women. And I think because we have a little bit of a distorted or a, a, an unclear vision about what is coming, we, we, we are not excited about what Jesus, through faith in him, is leading us towards. Secondly, how new is it? Is it a new earth, an entirely new creation, that this once present one is just destroyed and God makes a new one? Or is it this present world redeemed and renovated and restored so that there is come continuity between the world that we see now and the new world that is coming? Most of the passages imply that, that God is redeeming this world to make it a place for eternity. But one passage always causes people a little bit of confusion and that's 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 10. When we read, the heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Now when you read that, it gives the impression that God is going to totally destroy this present universe and make a new heaven and a new earth. But if you read Second Peter, he's been talking about those who deserve punishment, uh, those who um, stand against God. And you can also read that passage that it's not about the, the God coming to destroy the earth, but it's God coming to destroy evil, to destroy his enemies, to destroy the works of the devil. And they will be abolished. And the division between heaven, the heavens will disappear with the roar. That division between heaven and earth will disappear, disappear as God uh, judges evil and removes it from the earth. Is it a new heaven and a new earth or is there a continuity between this world? Paul says the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay. The creation itself, this world, will be liberated from its present bondage to decay, implying that God will redeem this present world. And it all makes sense theologically. If God destroys this present world to make a new one, then Satan actually has the ultimate victory because God has to start again. That's what he came to do, to destroy God's created works. But if God is in the process of redeeming human beings and redeeming the universe, you redeem what already is. When you redeem it, you set it free from its slavery and its destruction. So starting a whole new creation is entirely different from redeeming the present one. If God redeems this creation, God wins the victory on the very battlefield that it came under satanic attack. This world and this earth. And he redeems his world back to himself. 
He does not consign this present earth to the scrap heap. So that's the way I see it. How new is it? It's this world redeemed. So will the tree at the manse exist in eternity? That's a very interesting question. Will the mountains that you enjoy, you will see in eternity? It's a very interesting question. We're looking into a mist we don't know. But the Bible seems to say, well, think about this next, next week with 1 Corinthians 15. There is continuity between the person you are now to the person that you will be in eternity. So why not this creation? Finally, how glorious is it? 1 Corinthians 2, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. Here in Revelation chapter 21 and 22, the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, the city that represented the presence of God as it touched this world, descends into this earth. We read about its beauty. Uh, it's pictured with its gates of pearl, its jasper, its sapphire, every precious gem. There's a river that flows through it as clear as crystal. Where else do you get a river? You get a river in Genesis. And so Genesis had a river. This new Jerusalem has a river. It has a garden in the middle of it. Where else do you get a garden? You get it in the first chapter. So here is a garden city of God's presence with the river flowing through it, descending down. It has a tree in the middle of it that gives life to everyone. Where else do you get a tree? You get it in Genesis. So what the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, the new world is showing us is this is a new Eden, but it's more glorious. The glory of God will reign in it and it will satisfy everyone who is a part of it with their body, mind and soul. How glorious is it? No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. So as I conclude, <clears throat> look out a window and dream. Take a walk where you, you, you love walking, uh, whether it's the beach or a forest or a mountain. Paint a picture, write a poem, talk with a friend. Start to imagine eternity, a new heaven and a new earth that you will enjoy for eternity. Imagine the happy dog with the wagging tail, not a starling beast. Imagine the flowers unwilted in the blue sky without pollution. People smiling and joyful, not angry, depressed and empty. Think of friends and family members who have loved Jesus and are with them now. Picture them with you walking together in this place. And all of you have beautiful bodies. You have resurrection bodies. You're laughing, playing, talking, reminiscing. You pick up a tree. You reach up to a tree and pick up an apple and an orange and you take a bite and it's sweet and it's startlingly tasty. You've never tasted anything so good. And what's that you smell? A feast, a party's ahead and you're invited. There's exploration and work to be done and you cannot wait to get started. Everywhere you go, there are new people to meet, new places to enjoy, new things to discover. It's a new earth for you to enjoy. But whose new earth is it? It's the God who has created us and shown his love to us in Jesus. So Jesus, by his death and resurrection, makes this happen. And so therefore you see someone coming towards you. It's King Jesus with a big smile on his face. You fall to your knees in worship. 
and he pulls you up and embraces you, at last you are with the person you were made for in the place you were made to be.